Good afternoon. Our next case is Holmes versus Moore, and we will hear from the appellant. Afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court, Pete Patterson for the legislative defendants, and I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. The trial court's decision in this case is unsound both legally and factually. Legally, the trial court made two separate related errors. It flipped the burden of proof, and it failed to accord the General Assembly a presumption of good faith. Factually, the record in this case does not support a finding of racially discriminatory intent under any potentially applicable standard of review. On the legal errors with respect to flipping the burden of proof, this was clear in the trial court's opinion. In paragraph 230, for example, the trial court said that this is not like a typical case when the legislature does not have a burden of proving a lack of disparate impact because it had just been found to have discriminated in HB 589, clearly flipping the burden of proof. Also, in the heading between paragraphs 109 and 110 of the trial court's decision, the trial court said that SB 824 did not evince an intent to cure racial disparities found in HB 589, which is precisely the language that the U.S. Supreme Court in Abbott v. Perez found to flip the burden of proof. There, the trial court had faulted the Texas legislature for failing to cure any taint in connection with a prior law that had been found racially discriminatory, and the Supreme Court said that erroneously flipped the burden of proof. So, in addition to clearly flipping the burden of proof, the trial court did not afford the legislature a presumption of good faith. And that's particularly important in this case because this is a case about inferences. The historical facts are, for the most part, not in dispute, although the trial court got a few of the facts about SB 824 incorrect, such as the trial court said it accepts federal worker IDs when it, in fact, does not. It accepts state and local. And it also said that the time for eligibility for the free IDs is one year when, in fact, it is 10. And those are both errors repeated by the majority opinion in this court in its initial opinion. But other than those historical facts are mostly undisputed. So this is a case about inferences. And time after time, the trial court drew bad faith inferences when good faith inferences were just as available, if not more available. Counsel, as we're talking about presumptions, and you may be intending to get to this later in your argument, but I'd like to back up for a moment and talk about the threshold question of what the presumption is in the posture that the case is in now. That is to say, on rehearing. And certainly this argument about flipping the burden of proof and failing to accord the legislature the presumption of good faith, those were arguments that were made to this court on appeal the first time, correct? They were, Your Honor, yes. And so doesn't our standard on rehearing require that we only rehear a case and we only reverse a case if we've made some, if there's some legal issue that we fail to consider the first time around? No, Your Honor. Actually, the standard set out in the rule, Rule 31, is if something has been misapprehended or overlooked. Right, so overlooked would mean that we didn't address it. Well, it's misapprehended or overlooked under Rule 31. So your argument is that we should rehear and change our opinion because we got it wrong the first time. Yes, and this court has done that several times before. In the Alford case, for example, in the Branch Bacon case, for example, those were both cases where there was a misapprehension and the court reheard it and it came with a different outcome. And a similar situation is here. Let me ask you about what our court has said in the past about the presumptions that apply when we're hearing a case on rehearing. Because Wiesel v. Cobb, which is cited in the briefs in this matter, a 1898 decision of this court said, the court there said, as the highest principles of public policy favor a finality of litigation, rehearings are granted by us only in exceptional cases and then every presumption is in favor of the judgment already rendered. So you're not asking us to overrule that precedent, I take it. Well, that precedent was not under the current rule for rehearing, which is Rule 31. And the standard there is if something is misapprehended. 
and the cases, again, of branch baking, Alford came much after that case. So you're saying they we shouldn't follow this rule that was laid down <coughs> in 1898? Uh, it did not apply to the current statute, but in any event, we believe those standards are met here. And in addition, what the well, cases say, if cases are decided hastily, is another basis for rehearing. And here, the initial decision clearly was decided hastily. The Court of Appeals was skipped. The oral argument was expedited. And there were at least four basic errors about SB 824 in the record in the opinion. I've already mentioned two of them with respect to the federal worker IDs and with respect to the eligibility date for the voter IDs. In addition, it said there were five amendments that were tabled in the Senate proposed by Democrats, and there were four. It also said that Mississippi's voter ID law allows people to sign an affidavit and vote, but in fact, after signing that affidavit, people in Mississippi have to go back with a photo ID or with an explanation that they have a religious objection to being photographed. And so these things in the opinion are reflective of the haste with, with, with which the decision was decided. So is it then your argument to us that because of the timing of our um, consideration of this case, that the presumption that the judgment already rendered is correct, that that presumption no longer applies? I'm saying that is one basis this court has repeatedly said is a basis to rehear a case. An additional basis is the basis that is in the uh, statute in the rule, which is if something is misapprehended or overlooked. And we've said several things that have been misapprehended. So, so help me understand yeah when any case would be final. Because in every case, there are two sides to the argument. Yes. And the side that loses believes that we misapprehended the law and got it wrong. So where do we draw the line? When do we not allow rehearing? If, if, uh, if one side says we got it wrong, that's sufficient to have rehearing and reverse our decision. Where, how does that give us any finality in the law? When a majority of this court considering the arguments that something was misapprehended or overlooked, decides that, no, we do not agree with that. That Council, would be when it was, when a decision was I have required. a question for you. Um, is there a time limit in Rule 31 that applies, not to the parties, but to the court? Uh, no, not that I'm, well, well, yes, there is, Your Honor. It's 30 days after right. the rehearing petition, yes. And I think you're positive, because can you think of another rule of procedure, which tend to be focused on the parties, that puts a time constraint on the court itself I'm not aware of one. I can't uh, think of no. one either. And you might ask, why would the drafters of Rule 31 put that in there? And it seems that the reason is finality. Mm -hmm. So in North Carolina, under our procedure, a decision isn't final until 15 days after the mandate issues. And then if there is a petition for rehearing, it's still not final, but there's a tight time frame in there to get this thing done. And it's not going to sit around with people wondering, is this a final decision or not? And once it's over, Petition for rehearing has been resolved. There's nothing further pending. Stare decisis kicks in. It seems to me like a very clear rule to follow. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree, Your Honor. And, and, and I think it's incumbent upon this court when the petition raises legitimate issues that things have been overlooked or misapprehended. It provides an opportunity for the court to correct those things. And as you said, it's on a relatively tight time frame. Counsel, let me ask you about those issues in this case, talking about the law and the facts and misapprehension and overlooking. Uh, do you agree with the plaintiffs that the Arlington Heights factors test applies in this case? Yes. Then in order to rebut the good faith presumption to which you've alluded in favor of the legislature, if we have in this case, among other things, the earlier unconstitutional voter ID law, the earlier aspect of the legislatures who passed that law now supporting the recent law that's in front of us here, the legislative history on voter ID in this case, the law's passage in a legislative lame duck session, the discriminatory data, the expert testimony in this case on the trial level that talked about the disproportional impact and how many more factors might exist how many more factors do you need in this case for the presumption to have been rebutted that the legislature had discriminatory intent here? Well, as I said, the record in this case does not support a finding of discriminatory intent under any standard of review that's potentially applicable. And first of all, since the trial court did flip the burden of proof, uh, the standard of review is de novo. But even if that weren't the case, if we go through the Arlington Heights factors, it's clear that they do not support a finding of discrimination. On the legislative history, five Democrats voted to support this bill. 
and you have to analyze the intent of the legislature in terms of the plaintiff's theory of this case. The plaintiff's theory of this case is one of partisan entrenchment, that the Republicans in the General Assembly sought to entrench themselves by targeting African Americans who typically vote for Democrats, and yet five Democrats voted for this bill, four in its final form, and no one has ever explained how that is consistent with the plaintiff's theory of the case. The trial court did not, the plaintiffs have not in their briefs, this court in its initial decision did not. Do these and factors exist, the ones that I mentioned, do they exist in this case? Did the factors, I'm not sure what you mean if the factors exist, but yes, those are the Arlington Heights factors that you go through. If we speak about well, impact, what I did, I, I, went, what, I yes. went through, I yes. went through the facts as found yes. by the trial court relative to what Arlington Heights says, which is history and circumstantial evidence. And so what I've recited for you was the circumstantial evidence that was found. Do you agree that those facts were found and that those facts exist in this case? Uh, I agree that facts were found and that facts exist in this case, but under what this court has said in the Biroth oil case is that the competent evidence standard is less strict than the federal clear error standard. And what the federal clear error standard says is looking at all of the evidence in the record, if you have a definite and firm conviction that the decision is incorrect, it should be reversed. Well, all the so ice is a, a weighing aspect yes. in terms of the factors right. being in existence. So if discriminatory intent is found here as a contributing factor, it does not have to be the contributing right. factor, but if it is a contributing factor and the trial court found those facts, and you agree that those facts are found here, then why would the trial court have been in error? Well, I don't agree with that the trial court's finding that the particular Arlington Heights factors tended to support a finding of discriminatory intent. We absolutely contest that. And that is because, again, the historical facts are what the historical facts are here. Who voted for this bill, what the bill says. It's all about the inferences. And, and Your Honor, you mentioned the ID possession rates here. And that actually strongly cuts in defendant's favor in this case. And that is because the plaintiffs have not demonstrated any array of ID that would produce a narrower racial disparity. And when you have a legislature that is operating under a constitutional requirement to enact a voter ID law, and as far as the evidence in this case shows, they enacted the voter ID law with the narrowest possible racial disparity. But that's, that an, ar that's an argument as to how to look at the evidence. But if the evidence shows that this is in existence and it's in the record, then isn't the trial court in a position to accept the evidence, construe the evidence, apply the law to the facts here, Arlington Heights, and determine, therefore, that because there is evidence, the findings of fact are supported by the evidence, and the conclusions of law are supported by the findings of fact? Not on this record, Your Honor, no, because the findings of the facts in this record do not support a finding of racial discrimination. As I said, the, the theory of this case is partisan entrenchment. So we have evidence that the legislature enacted the narrowest possible racial disparity in terms of a voter ID law. But then in addition to that, the legislature made sure that every voter can vote. They have not identified a single voter in North Carolina who cannot vote under SBA 24. And that's so even wholly apart from the reasonable impediment provision. Even if the reasonable impediment provision were not in this case, every voter could vote because there are free IDs available at early voting locations. And if individuals don't get them there, they have 10 days from after election day to go to a county board of elections, have their photograph taken, and cure a uh, ballot that they cast. So on, on everyone can vote. Point, excuse me, counsel, yes. but certainly you agree that there's a difference between just being able to go and cast a ballot and whether or not that ballot is actually counted when the votes Every counted. voter can vote and have their ballot counted. Well, so you, you, you've, repeated, you're, you've repeatedly argued in your briefs that um, you know, we haven't point, the, the plaintiffs didn't point to a single voter who, who can't vote. But the, but the evidence in the trial court, before the trial court, did look at a reasonable impediment. This law hasn't actually been implemented, right? Mm -hmm. there hasn't, we right. have not had an election under this law, right? And, and it's certainly not your argument that Arlington Heights says you can only assess the impact of a racially discriminatory law after it's been in effect, correct? No. Okay, so in the trial court's opinion, paragraph 116, trial court found, based on the testimony of Kim Strack, 
This court finds that during the March 2016 primary, when House Bill 589 was in effect, voters were disenfranchised despite the option to complete a reasonable impediment declaration and vote a provisional ballot. Specifically, 184 out of 1,048, or more than 15% of reasonable impediment provisional ballots, did not count during the March 2016 primary. The, this court finds that a significant amount of otherwise eligible voters who attempted to vote by way of the reasonable impediment process in the March 2016 primary had their votes rejected. It is, isn't that evidence, this is not inference, this is evidence that people who tried to use the reasonable impediments process did not have their votes counted. Well, there are at least two answers to that, Your Honor. First. We're speaking about the intent of the legislature, so we need to look at the design of the statute. What the Fourth Circuit said in Raymond is that if the statute is implemented in a certain way that is perhaps not in accordance with that design, that does not speak to legislative intent. So that's the first answer. The second answer is that it's critically important that this is a different law, and here the plaintiffs have not pointed to anyone who by the terms of SB 824 will not be able to vote and have their vote counted. I said, I mentioned the free IDs. So every one of those 184 people under HB 589, in, instead of casting a reasonable impediment declaration, could have cast a, under SB 24, could have cast a provisional ballot and then had 10 days from election day to return to a, uh, the county board of elections, have their photo taken and cure that ballot. So there is no person in North Carolina that the plaintiffs have identified who according to the terms of SB 824 will not be able to vote. And it just does not bespeak discriminatory intent, racially discriminatory intent, to enact a voter ID law that allows everyone to vote. And the availability of the free IDs during early voting is particularly important because what the legislature was told in HB 589, one of the things they were faulted for is they reduced the time available for early voting. And they were told, well, African-Americans disproportionately use early voting. So we're going to count that against you, that you shortened that time frame. Well, the, here trial, they, the trial court also found that African-Americans disproportionately have public assistance. Based upon that, what should we make it of, of anything in terms of, again, the legislative history here, that the legislature chose not to allow public assistance IDs to be allowed as those free IDs that African-Americans may disproportionately have access to. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked about that, Your Honor, because that is a primary example of the trial court failing to accord a presumption of good faith because the trial court did not find that African-Americans disproportionately possess public assistance IDs. What the trial court found is that there are no public assistance IDs that would qualify under uh, the amended statute, which after the public assistance ID originally was not included in the statute, it was later added. And what the trial court said was we're not going to credit the General Assembly for that because none of these actually exist. At the same time, it presumed bad faith for not including them in the first place. Well, let me and also this, tell you what the yes. trial court said about it since you're quoting the trial court. Trial court said that the lack of the legislature's allowance of public assistance IDs was, quote, telling, unquote, and that it was also, quote, particularly suspect because legislators could have reasonably surmised that those forms of ID would be held disproportionately by African-American voters, unquote. Since I've got that from yeah. the record, right. and I assume you're quoting from the record, right. then how do those jibe? Well, footnote two on that very paragraph 107 is where the trial court does not credit the General Assembly with later adding public assistance IDs because it said that none exist. But again, this is directly contrary to what Raymond did, looking at this same legislative record, said that the exchange over public assistance IDs does not bespeak discrimination. And furthermore, what the Fourth Circuit said in Raymond was that, and it couldn't in any event because the evidence shows that none of these actually exist, so it can't possibly bespeak dis, uh, a bad faith intent to discriminate to not include a form of ID that is not actually in existence. So that is a primary example of the failure to afford good faith to the legislature. Another Council, example, yes. I have a couple of Abbott-related questions yes. for you. Um, because, and they were sparked by the um, findings of fact just cited by, by Justice Morgan. 
Um, doesn't Abbott say uh, that when a trial court uh, fails to, to um, afford the presumption of good faith um, that its findings of fact um, cannot stand? Yes. Um, and, and with respect to the, the relevance of uh, HB 589 to SB 824, isn't it the case that in Abbott the two redistricting plans were enacted within two years of each other? Yes. And yet nonetheless, in reviewing the constitutionality of the later plan, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the trial court was wrong to impute any discriminatory intent that may have been behind the, other, the, the, the earlier plan to the later plan. Yes, and there are actually two additional points about Abbott that I would like to make, if, if possibly, Your Honor, and that are very pertinent to this case. One, in Abbott, the U.S. Supreme Court said acting quickly in a special session does not show bad faith enough to overcome the presumption of good faith. And so that's exactly what the trial court did here. It said they acted quickly in a special session. So that shows bad faith. Abbott v. Perez says that's not good enough. In addition, the leg Texas legislature in Abbott versus Perez used as its baseline a, an interim redistricting plan that uh, a court had imposed after the first plan was thrown out as racially discriminatory. And Abbott v. Perez credited the uh, legislature with doing that. Here, the General Assembly of North Carolina relied on a South Carolina voter ID law that had been pre-cleared under charges of racial discrimination by a federal district court, used that as the baseline, and then in fact made it more voter protective even of that law. And yet the trial court in this case did not uh, point that as a reason to presume good faith on the part of the legislature. So just at every turn, this decision is contrary to the Supreme Court's decision in Abbott. Counsel, I'm, I'm sorry, I want to get back to uh, a couple of points that, that you made. You, you indicated previously that uh, plaintiff's theory of the case had to do with partisan entrenchment. Correct. Uh, where do you get that uh, purported theory of the case from? Well, it's just from their briefing and <coughs> argumentation, which is the theory is they're saying we're not accusing anyone of harboring, you know, animus or anything of that nature. We're thinking that Republicans uh, want to have more Republicans be elected, and they know that African Americans disproportionately vote for Democrats, so we're going to target them and uh, make it more likely that we're going to get the vote. But the only way that that works is if, that, if individuals are actually prevented from voting. Well, but before yes. you get there, yes. if, if this is a case about partisan entrenchment and yes. not race, yes. would we be closer to the uh, Birdwick standard or Arlington Heights? Well, there, it would be Arlington Heights, Your Honor, because what they're saying is that they uh, targeted African Americans. So this was racially discriminatory, even if the ends were partisan. So that's how uh, you get to Arlington Heights, and courts have typically evaluated it that way. So, for example, uh, the Fourth Circuit in the Raymond case evaluated uh, the claims under SBA 24 similarly. So I don't think anyone's disputing that the Arlington Heights factors apply, but it's important to note that the Arlington Heights factors are not of some talismanic significance. They're just an aid to get to was race It's a, an evidentiary test. Yes, it's just an evidentiary test. It's not like, okay, each of these factors gets a 25% weight, and then if one points one way, it's just a way of organizing the evidence. And, and we are free to develop uh, any evidentiary test that we think would be helpful in understanding Article 1, Section 19. Absolutely. So let, let me go back to yes. something you said at the very beginning. This case is about inferences. Yes. Um, Turning your attention to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, U.S. Supreme Court in looking at um, Arlington Heights in Hunter versus Underwood, yes. um, dealing with some Alabama legislation and the Alabama Constitution, yes. uh, basically drilled down on direct evidence of uh, discriminatory intent. Correct. What direct evidence do we have close to or anywhere near uh, statements uh, in drafting the Alabama Constitution uh, that the um, that this provision was in Alabama to establish white supremacy in the state. Absolutely nothing, and in fact, the other side's witnesses, uh, Representative Harrison, Senator McKissick, nobody would say that race even entered into this. So, so, isn't can you point me to a case from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, dealing with Arlington Heights in which? Um, this uh, Underwood standard of, of somewhat direct evidence being required 
um, that, that there's a lower standard somewhere from the U.S. Supreme Court when it deals to election-related matters dealing with race? Uh, no, there's no lower standard. But, but you're not contending that oh, the only way that racial discrimination can be proved in the elections context is if there's direct evidence of, of discriminatory intent? Uh, I mean, by conceding that Arlington yes. Heights applies, the whole point of Arlington Heights is that a law that's neutral on its face may nonetheless have been passed with discriminatory intent, correct? It is, and so, so it would be theoretically possible, yes, but the question was, am I aware of a case that has found that, and I'm not, in the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, but there's other courts that have applied yes. it. Yes, yes, yes. But are we bound by those other courts? In, no. in interpreting the North Carolina Constitution, Article One, Section 19, are we bound by federal courts' uh, interpretation of Arlington Heights or any test that they have applied in this context? No, you're not, Your Honor. And I'm into my rebuttal time. I'm happy to answer any other questions, but if not, I'll reserve my remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. You're from the appellee. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court, Paul Brockman on behalf of plaintiffs' appellees. This court should leave in place its December 16th opinion affirming the trial court's judgment. As Justice Earls has already noted, the standard on rehearing affords that judgment all inferences of correctness, and it is correct for two reasons. First, this court concluded that the trial court correctly applied the Arlington Heights framework, burden-shifting framework, that all parties in this case agree applies in terms of the legal standard that's applicable. Well, counsel, let me, let me stop you there, and I apologize for getting to you early in your argument. Uh, but on page two of your brief, you indicate that uh, the trial court was permitted to consider whether historical evidence in the record rebutted the presumption of legislative good faith and whether such evidence was indicative of discriminatory intent. Are you contending that that is an accurate uh, interpretation and application of the law under U.S. Supreme Court precedent? Absolutely, Your Honor. Okay. So, fact, counsel, let me turn you to uh, Abbott versus Perez. Um, in Abbott versus Perez, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court stated that the allocation of the burden of proof and the presumption of legislative good faith are not changed by a finding of past discrimination. Past discrimination cannot in the matter of original sin, condemn governmental action that is not itself unlawful. The ultimate question remains whether a discriminatory intent has been proved in a given case. The historical background, historical background of a legislative enactment is one evidentiary source relevant to the question of intent. But we have never suggested that past discrimination flips the evidentiary burden on its head. So how is the statement that you made in uh, page two of your brief consistent with uh, that law statement from Abbott? It's consistent with that statement from Abbott, Your Honor, because the Abbott court also explained that historical evidence, including the intent of a prior legislature, can be relevant to the extent that it raises inferences about the intent of a subsequent legislature. Well, but, but your, the statement here on, on paragraph two seems to uh, imply that historical evidence alone um, is enough to flip the presumption. It, it, that is not our position. It is one of the factors that a court can consider in deciding whether the rebuttable presumption has indeed been rebutted. And isn't it the, true that the majority opinion that was previously issued from which you indicate uh, you drew this statement uh, could be read that historical evidence alone is enough to flip that presumption. I don't believe that's an accurate assessment of the court's prior opinion. I don't believe it's an accurate assessment of what plaintiffs' appellees have argued throughout this case or what the trial court found. I think what the trial court did and what this court previously did is exactly what it was required to do under Arlington Heights, which is to look at the totality of the circumstances, the totality of the evidence under each of the factors that the court in Arlington Heights considered uh, could be indicative of unlawful intent. And the trial court made clear that the, that the burden that was placed on plaintiffs to show improper intent would shift only if plaintiffs carried that burden. That's 
perfectly clear in the trial court's opinion. And so the, the trial court's opinion, as well as this court's opinion affirming that judgment, set forth the appropriate standard under Arlington Heights, which is plaintiff's appellees bear the initial burden of showing that uh, improper intent was one factor. It doesn't have to be the only factor. It doesn't have to be racial animus, but improper discriminatory intent was a factor motivating the passage of SBA 24. At that point, if under the totality of the evidence standard, plaintiffs carry that burden, then the presumption of good faith goes away. The presumption of constitutionality of the legislature's acts go away, and the legislature's uh, purported justifications for the law have to be judged without the presumption in place and have to be judged to, to determine whether the law would have been enacted but for the discriminatory intent. That's, exact, that's exactly what the trial court did. And I'd like to- Counsel, yes. uh, does the trial court's order anywhere mention the presumption of good faith? The trial court's order does not use the language of Abbott. The trial court- Is that a no? It does not? It, it does not, Your Honor. The, the trial court made clear, however, that it was the plaintiff's burden to carry to show that discriminatory intent was a motivating factor for the law and that, that, and that the, 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 the burden would shift only to the legislature to defend the law if plaintiffs carried that burden. Although it doesn't use the exact words presumption of good faith, that is a statement of law that is consistent with the presumption of good faith. And indeed, that is what the Court of Appeals said when we were on appeal from the preliminary injunction decision in this case, which is that under North Carolina law, acts of the legislature are presumed constitutional, and that that is consistent with the Arlington Heights burden-shifting standard that requires the plaintiffs to first show an unlawful discriminatory intent before the legislature is called into action to defend its actions. So if the question is, did it use the exact language from Abbott? No, it did not. Did the trial court apply Abbott while not mentioning it expressly in terms of looking at Abbott with relation to Arlington Heights, looking at the evidence and looking at the factors that both sides in this case agree would apply from Arlington Heights? It, it did, Your Honor, and, and I think there are some good examples that show that the trial court's analysis was perfectly appropriate. So one of the things that my friends uh, on the other side have pointed to as supposed evidence of improper burden flipping or uh, not according the presumption of good faith is that the trial court analyzed the fact that HB 589 had been passed just a few years before SB 824 and that it was possible that members of the legislature who had voted for HB 589 would understand that SB 824 was also likely to bear more heavily on African-American voters than white voters. Is that, that is, is that an appropriate Arlington Heights factor to be considered in terms of circumstantial evidence? It is, Your Honor. It's exactly what the Abbott Court said courts can do under Arlington Heights consistent with the presumption of good faith. In other words, if something that the HB 589 legislature did gives rise to an inference of improper intent, then the court is allowed to look at how the, the current legislature, the SBA 24 legislature, either responded to that or did not respond to that. In Abbott, and I think this is a clear indication of just how distinguishable Abbott is from this case. In Abbott, there were districts that were passed, the court later concluded with discriminatory intent. In the interim, the Supreme Court told the Texas court, modify those plans and remove legal defects. The court promulgated new plans. The reenacting legislature then reenacted plans that, at least according to the court, had been modified to remove legal defect, legal defect. So what the Supreme Court said in Abbott was, of course the court could have looked at what the reenacting court did relative to the 2011 legislature. It just, it just looked at it the wrong way. It just simply assumed that because there was bad intent in 2011, it carried through to 2013. What it should have done was look at what the 2013 legislature did. And the 2013 legislature enacted plans that, at least according to the information it had at the time, had been cured of legal defect by a court. And so what the Supreme Court in Abbott said was, that's actually really strong evidence of good intent. 
And the only way that the trial court could have reached a different conclusion was by simply assuming a through line of intent from 2011, of bad intent from 2011 to 2013. If you apply the same logic, the same analytical structure to what happened here, it shows exactly why the trial court's inferences were correct and consistent with the presumption of good faith. In HB 589, the legislature looked at race data. The legislature understood that the forms of ID that were included in HB 589 were going to create racial disparities in possession rates. It knew that. Many, many dozens of members of the HB 589 legislature were part of the legislature that voted for SB 824. There was nothing in the interim remotely like the court in Texas adopting plans that removed legal defect. Counsel, what's the relevance of the fact that you may have had some of the same legislators? I, I would imagine that was true in Abbott, where the original plans were enacted in uh, 2011 and then the subsequent plans in, in, in 2013, but uh, did, the, did the U.S. Supreme Court identify that as a relevant consideration in Abbott? I believe it did, Your Honor, in a way that supported the finding of a good intent for the subsequent legislature in Abbott, meaning that, yes, you had legislators in 2011 who may have had a bad intent, but those same legislators, to the extent they voted again in 2013, did so believing that they were enacting plans that had been blessed by a court. And, and to get back to my comparison to, to this context in this case, what happened here is different, and the reason it's different is because the key fact that the trial court picked up on was that legislators who voted for HB 589, simply by virtue of human memory, not any kind of suggestion of bad intent or improper purpose, would have known, would have understood, or at least plausibly could have been understood to know that Form, that there would be racial disparities in ID. But that's not enough, is it, under Arlington Heights? It's, it's not enough to show that there might be some knowledge that there might be a disparate impact. There has to be a discriminatory motive. Isn't that right? Well, discriminatory impact is one of the factors under Arlington Heights that can be indicative of a finding of intent. Right, but it's, it's, it's not enough. It is not the sole touchstone. That is the language of... So, so heights, the, the mere awareness that a law might affect one group differently than another, that by itself, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think under Arlington Heights case law, that's not enough to show discriminatory intent by itself. By, its, by itself, unless, in, under Arlington Heights, unless the pattern of disparate impact could only be explained right. like by a get -woo situation unlawful or intent. Like. So, so in Abbott, what the court ended up really focusing on was direct evidence, what, what the direct evidence was of the intent of the 2013 legislature. So what is the direct evidence of a discriminatory intent um, with respect to the enactment of SB 824? So first of all, under Arlington Heights, direct evidence is not required. No, but, it, but in Abbott, the court turned to uh, direct the direct evidence that had been brought to its attention about the intent of the 2013 Texas legislature. That is correct, but it remains the case under Arlington Heights that direct evidence is not required. But my, question, fact, but my question for you is, what's the direct evidence in the record that the legislators who voted for SB 824 um, intended it to be discriminatory? <coughs> Are there any statements that were made by legislators, for example, around the enactment of that that would that you can point us to as an example? There's nothing in the trial record that suggests that there were statements made on the floor that expressed racial animus or expressed a direct intent to disenfranchise African-American voters during the debate on SBA 24. Plaintiffs' appellees have never presented that theory of the case. It also does nothing to undermine the correctness of the trial court's judgment or this court's ruling affirming it. And then the, the reason is expressed in Arlington Heights. We are fortunately well past the time where we expect to find blatant statements of racially discriminatory motive in the legislative record. I so, hope we so counsel, if, back there. I'm sorry, counsel, if I understand uh, you are indicating that there is no direct evidence of racial animus 
and Senate Bill or uh, the, the legislative Bill 824? There are, what, what I said in response to Justice Allen's question is that there were no statements by legislators on the floor in the debate over SB 824 that expressly said that the purpose of the bill was to disenfranchise African-American voters. And, and you would agree that Hunter versus Underwood uh, applied Arlington Heights and there was uh, a showing there of direct evidence of uh, an intent to discriminate against blacks. There was, Your Honor, but that case is, I would argue, quite distinguishable from the situation here. Well, un so, un understand, but, but you do agree that uh, there was direct evidence in that case and they did apply the Arlington Heights uh, uh, test. Arlington Heights does not preclude the possibility that direct evidence can factor into the analysis. What Arlington Heights says is you don't need direct evidence. You can arrive at a conclusion of discriminatory intent by looking solely at circumstantial evidence. There's nothing improper about that, precisely because we hope in 2023 that we are well past the point where legislators are going to stand up on the floor of the General Assembly and proclaim an intent to disenfranchise African-American voters. And, and you agree that the legislation on its face is race neutral? I, I do, Your Honor, and that, again, is expressly what Arlington Heights is directed to, is the fact that facially neutral laws can nevertheless be found to be unlawfully intentionally discriminatory if the totality of the evidence, including in the categories articulated by the court in Arlington Heights, shows that improper intent was one of the motivating factors behind the law. That's what the trial court found based on factual findings that, as, as I think my friend conceded, are really largely undisputed. They dispute the inferences that were drawn from the facts. They say the facts can't stand if the good faith presumption under Abbott wasn't applied, but the good faith presumption was applied, and the trial court made a number of findings that under Arlington Heights are more than sufficient to support its ultimate factual conclusion that discriminatory intent was a motivating factor behind SBA 24. The trial so, court- so, uh, I'm sorry, counsel. So, so at what point would a legislature in North Carolina be permitted to pass this statute? At what point would a legislature in North Carolina be permitted to pass a voter ID law? Yes, but could, this particular one. The particular law that it enacted in SBA 24? Yes. I, I just, and I don't, I don't mean to be difficult. I just want to try to understand, is your question asking whether there's some waiting period that's required or? Well, so, so what you have argued is, is that because of the history in North Carolina, uh, because of uh, the, the previous legislation that was dealt with in McCrory, uh, despite the ruling in Raymond uh, on this issue, that, that the legislative act in question here, uh, the 824, uh, is somehow impermissible because of those connecting those dots. At what point is there a severance uh, of that line? Uh, I, I think of it like fruit of the poisonous tree. At, at what point is the taint removed such that this legislation, under your argument, could be passed by the legislature? Well, Your Honor, I think you have to look at, and this is why the Arlington Heights standard discusses the totality of the evidence, I think you have to look at everything. So you mentioned connecting the dots between history um, and the prior decision about HB 589, but that's far from the only evidence in the record and far from the only findings that the trial court found that supported an inference of discriminatory intent. No, I understand. I, I'm asking you, at what point could this identical legislation be passed by a future legislature? So it, it sounds to me like your question is asking me to speculate about changing certain facts in the record and whether that would or were, would, would not change the outcome of this case. Consistent with Arlington Heights, I think you need to look at everything. And so if there were a subsequent attempt made to pass a future voter identification law, we would again need to look at all of the circumstantial evidence and see how that bears on whether or not there's an inference of discriminatory intent. And to give just one example that I think is very significant in this case is the, the procedural manner in which this law and this veto override um, was conducted during a, during a lame duck session. And, and I'm sorry, I, you, you mentioned, I, I wanna ask, what, what do you mean when you say lame duck? Meaning it was passed 
during a session after the general election, when the voters of this state had voted in enough Democratic lawmakers to break the Republican supermajority, to break the supermajority that would have been in a, that would have been able to enact SBA 24 in its enacted form over the governor's veto. And this isn't just some esoteric academic theory. This comes from the mouth of legislative defendants' own expert witness, who said acting during a lame duck session as this legislature did is, number one, consistent with the majority wanting to wield its power to the maximum extent, and number two, consistent with a theory that they did not want to pass a watered-down voter ID law. In other words, they didn't want to pass a voter ID law that would have attracted enough support from their Democratic colleagues to override Governor Cooper's veto. I think we can infer that that ID law would have at a minimum been more flexible and so we would be dealing with a different statute and that is part of what we would have to consider. Well, Council, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, uh, Justice Allen, let me, let me sure. finish this point. Um, under that definition, would the decision rendered by this court in December uh, have been done by a lame duck Supreme Court? It would not have, Your Honor, for the simple reason, and, and I'm sure that if I'm misunderstanding the court's procedure, you will correct me, but my understanding is that the, the case was submitted at the conclusion of the hearing. Uh, obviously, the court speaks through its orders, but that case was heard by, by the, the prior court before the election in October, is my recollection. The case was submitted. The fact that the opinion came out in December I don't think is in any way analogous to what the legislature did in enacting SBA 24. And, and part of the way I think we know that is that other constitutional amendments that were approved by the voters that also inquired, also required, I'm sorry, implementing legislation, including Marcy's Law, that legislation was deferred to 2019 when the incoming legislature was seated. So, I don't think there's any question, but again, I'll defer to the court on its own practices, that a case that was submitted during last year's term could be deferred and held over to be decided by a different composition of the court in this term. That's just simply not factually the same thing. I think it's, it's apples and oranges. So, um, so you, you would say it's like uh, proposing legislation uh, before an election and then enacting the legislation after the election? I mean, is it not true that the court only speaks when we render our decision? I, I agree with your honor that the court speaks through its orders. There's no question about that. I'm simply saying that when the, when the case is submitted during the term, during the prior term, I'm not aware of a mechanism by which the court could then defer rendering its decision under a new composition of the court. That's why, in my understanding, we're here on a petition for rehearing. I can't speak for the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, Justice Allen, I uh, quickly, I, I want to make the observation, at least at the Court of Appeals, it happens routinely, and the thing that happens is you rehear the case, which is, I believe, what we're doing right now. That's, that's right, Your Honor. We are here on a petition for rehearing. I was simply responding to Justice Berger's question about whether the, the fact of the court's December 16, 2022 opinion coming out after the election was analogous to what the legislature did with SBA 24, and it's not for the reasons that we've discussed previously. Th thank you, Counsel. I'll, well, I'll hand it to Justice Allen. Well, not quite, but Counsel, and Justice Allen, I'll be there momentarily. But Counsel, just getting back on this point that's been raised uh, and looking at that which we are supposedly gathered for, which is to look at what happened in this case on the trial court level in terms of whether or not Arlington Heights was properly applied. In looking at Arlington Heights factors and in looking at history coupled with circumstantial evidence, is it your position that the lame duck session at which the law at issue uh, passed and is being considered here, along with other factors, irrespective of the composition of this court at the time that this case was originally heard, but what the trial court did in this case, is a lame duck session composed of some legislators that passed an unconstitutional voter ID law upon which there's some evidence that that could be considered 
coupled with other factors, something that was appropriately considered here in the Arlington Heights factor test application. That's, that's, that's exactly right, Your Honor. The, the, the nature of the legislative session in which SBA 24 was enacted, the procedural history that break from legislative norms are all pieces of evidence that the trial court was perfectly, uh, perfectly able to consider in reaching its judgment. And the trial court found that each of those things were indicative of intent, and it didn't have to reach very far to reach those conclusions, in part for the reason I mentioned previously, which is that one of defendant's own expert witnesses said acting in this manner is consistent with this kind of entrenchment theory. Acting in this manner is consistent with not wanting to pass a watered down version of a voter ID law. Acting in this manner is consistent with not wanting to pass a version of the law that would have attracted enough bipartisan support to override Governor Cooper's veto with Democratic voters included, or Democratic legislators included. And so the idea that, that the nature of the legislative session and the nature of the legislative history in which this bill was enacted um, could support an inference of improper intent under our theory of the case, I think, is not a stretch at all and is something that, from my perspective, in the, in the trial record, uh, in the evidence and the testimony that the trial court heard in person and considered the credibility of and weighed against all of the, ev all of the other evidence was something that, that came from defendants' own witnesses. And so it's, it's really not much of a stretch at all. Um, I see that- May I, I ask my question? If I can still remember it. Um, so you mentioned out, you mentioned that uh, uh, the idea that the, the legislature acted in, in what you call a lame duck session to avoid having to pass a, a watered down version of the voter ID law. So I'm just curious as to, to what you think that would be because uh, the, the law in front of us provides IDs free of charge. Uh, and as I think has already been explained, doesn't actually prevent anyone from voting. A person with a reasonable impediment can vote without an ID. A person who forgets his or her ID can vote and then come back, I think within a 10 day period to, to, to show that ID. So um, what would be a more watered down version of, of voter ID than a voter ID law that allows people to vote essentially without a voter ID? Your Honor, I, I think it's important to distinguish between casting a regular ballot and casting a provisional ballot that may not count. There was evidence in the trial record that voters under HB 589 who cast provisional ballots, many of those provisional ballots were not counted and that in fact there was a racial disparity in the break. Are, are we to assume that the General Assembly uh, intended for the law to be improperly administered or are we to assume that it intended for the law to be properly administered? I don't think you need to assume improper, uh, that the legislature intended for the law to be administered improperly to still credit the trial courts. So, so would you agree that if this law is properly administered, no one who has the right to vote would be denied the ability to vote or cast a provisional ballot? If the law is properly administered, someone who does not have an acceptable form of ID could cast a provisional ballot. That is a different question from whether. So how is it relevant to us if, if administrators um, fail to follow the law properly? Well, it's, it's relevant, Your Honor, because of, of. Well, how is it relevant to the issue of legislative intent? And I'll let you answer. Thank you, Your Honor. It's, it's relevant because a considerable portion of the defense of this law was that you cannot infer bad intent because of the presence of a reasonable impediment provision. If the reasonable impediment provision doesn't work, that's not very good evidence that the legislature couldn't possibly have had an improper intent. And isn't it true that there were amendments that would, that would um, change how this law operates that were rejected during this process? And isn't it true that many states have a signature alternative? so that persons who don't have an ID can sign a statement under oath saying they are who they say they are and they can vote. That's correct. And, and wouldn't that be more watered down than what is, exists now? It would be, Your Honor, and as would, as would a law that included additional forms of ID, as would a law, frankly, that was the product of study by the legislature 
to arrive at a determination of what the most inclusive version of a voter ID law might look like. None of that happened here because the legislature had to rush SBA 24 through in the lame duck session so that they could pass their preferred version of the bill before racial gerrymanders were undone, which would have further shifted power to, or were expected to further shift power to the Democrats. And all of that were, all of those things were facts that the trial court seized on in reaching its ultimate conclusion that there was evidence in all of the Arlington Heights factors indicative of discriminatory intent. I'm running very short on time, and so I just want to respond to a couple of points um, that were, were raised by my friend in his argument. Um, the first is that under Arlington Heights, the standard is whether the law bears more heavily on one group or another, not whether the law will perfectly disenfranchise one group or another. This law does bear more heavily on African-American voters because they're disproportionately more likely to lack qualifying ID, more likely to face difficulties acquiring ID, and as we saw under HB 589, more likely to run into difficulties with the reasonable impediment provision. Um, and in my last few seconds, I also just want to briefly touch on whatever the similarities between clear error and competent evidence, what the competent evidence standard no doubt means under this court's precedent is that a trial court's finding is not wrong just because you might also be able to draw a different conclusion from the facts. That's all that the, that the appellants are asking this court to do, is draw their preferred inference from the facts. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Rebuttal. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. I'd just like to make a few points. First, opposing counsel has conflated the issue of the burden of proof and the presumption of good faith. The question was asked where in the trial court's decision was a presumption of good faith. The answer was it's not, but he acknowledged the, when the burden of proof changes. Those are distinct issues. One is who bears the burden of proof, and another is whether there's a presumption of good faith that is applied when analyzing the evidence that was nowhere in the trial court's decision. Two, an attempt was made to distinguish between what happened in Abbott v. Perez versus what happened in this case, but it's exactly the same. One attempted distinction was, well, they relied on an interim court decision that eliminated racial discrimination. But here, the General Assembly relied on a statute that was judicially held in South Carolina to not be racially discriminatory, and then actually made it much more voter protective. The reasonable impediment provision that was in HB 589 that, in fact, was not credited at all in McCrory because it was not in the initial bill, but in any event, that was in HB 589 was much stricter than the reasonable impediment provision in SB 824. It was an impediment to obtaining an ID versus presenting an ID. So under the reasonable impediment provision in this legislation, people that forget IDs can cast a reasonable impediment ballot. Oh, there are no ballot challenges. Yes, Your Honor. I'm sorry to interrupt you, yes. but um, I do want to ask about something that hasn't been yes. um, directly raised, although I think this is relevant to the issue of the timing of the court's decision and your, er, your much earlier suggestion that a presumption of correctness shouldn't apply to our first decision because we ruled so quickly. And I, I want to refer you to the um, state defendant's supplemental brief, which was filed on rehearing, where the state said, all defendants agree that implementation of the law will require significant lead time. Specifically, the state board and its partners will need to engage in outreach efforts to raise public awareness about the law and its requirements, conduct trainings, develop software changes to the election information management system, and engage in rulemaking. State defendants respectfully request that this court take these logistical necessities into account in its resolution of this case. Do you think the need for lead time and those kinds of logistical necessities and the importance of voters knowing what may or may not be required of them when they go to vote, that those might be matters that would urge this court to act expeditiously? Uh, it's possible, Your Honor, although this, when this case was expedited, one of the reasons that was argued against expediting was, was this would be confusing to voters because it would be happening right at when the election was happening, but nevertheless, this court chose to expedite the decision. But even if that's true, it doesn't change the fact that it was done hastily and perhaps mistakes were made. As I indicated, there are four or five basic factual mistakes in the majority opinion, which perhaps bespeaks the haste with which it was made. That doesn't mean it was wrong to act hastily, but it doesn't change the fact that there was Haste involved. Well, counsel, and I, I yes. Just one last thing on that. Yeah. So, also, this this sort of clock, if there is one, of how quickly right. the other part that would only start running after the court issued a decision, right? Exactly. As long as the case was under submission, no one was going forward with voter ID here in North correct. Carolina. There was correct. An, there was an injunction in place, Your Honor. Um, and uh, with respect to. Uh, 
mention was made of racial data, and this is just indicative of the way the evidence has been treated in this case. In HB 589, the General Assembly was blamed for seeking racial data and saying this is indicative of racially discriminatory intent that you sought this racial data and then enacted these laws. So this time, the General Assembly does not seek racial data, and yet that's held against them again. It's like a catch-22. Regardless of what they do, it's going to be held to be indicative of racially discriminatory intent. But instead, what they did was, again, they relied on a law that had been judicially pre-cleared in South Carolina but made it much more voter protective. The array of IDs that are in this, this uh, statute, as far as the evidence in the record showed, is the narrowest possible racial disparity that could be had in South Carolina. Um, and it's clear that the burden of proof, I just urge the court to read paragraphs 230, the heading between 109 and 110, it was not a mere uh, attributing memory to the General Assembly. It was flipping the burden of proof. And finally, the Callanan testimony, Callanan clearly said that acting in a Thank extra you, session is normal. I believe your Thank time you. has expired. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Mr. Clark.